Hello and welcome back to The Rewind. I'm Josh and this is a podcast where I watch a bunch of movies and talk about them with my friends. Today on The Rewind, we are going all the way back to 1912. We're getting wet with James Cameron for the second time in as many months. We are talking about Titanic. Joining me today, uh, they would make room for each other on a, on a life raft. It's Adam Lichtenstein and Fred Cobb. Guys, how's it going? Pretty good. Pretty good. I uh, I don't think the issue is the space. I think it's the buoyancy. That's there's the problem. Ah, uh, right. <laughs> I mean, fair, fair point, fair point. But like, I mean, like, uh, you know, it'd been a while since I'd seen the movie. So I hadn't really like I, I you always hear people joke like, oh, could she have made room for him? Could she have done that? And like, that's like a joke. And people like bug Leonardo DiCaprio about it in interviews. And it's like this been so long since I'd seen the movie. I really had no opinion on it. You know, I, I just got a kick out of like Leonardo DiCaprio, who doesn't like to say anything interesting in interviews, like getting bugged about that and having to act like he wasn't that annoyed um fred how's it going it's going well i was actually just in canada for the weekend and i did some on-site research about what it would feel like to be this cold um it's it's not pleasant i can tell you that so now i have just a small fraction of an idea of what uh the people in the water must have felt like yeah and adam was in milwaukee last week when it was probably almost approximating your uh canadian temperatures and i'm the one that actually likes cold weather and i've been stuck here in florida but uh alas uh titanic got released re-released in theaters guys it is the it it was james cameron's epic made uh made over a maybe made over like what over a billion and a billion dollars in its first theatrical run in 1997 and went on to win best picture along with several other academy award nominee academy award wins uh it stars leonardo dicaprio and kate linsbitt as uh rose uh is it rose to it Bucater? I forgot how to pronounce your last name. Bucater. Bucater, yeah. Bucater. How, how, dare, how dare me, a guy from Philadelphia, uh, you know, insult the Philadelphia high society like that. Uh, and- there is a joke in the movie about Leo DiCaprio asking her to write yeah. the name down because it's so complicated. So we get it. <laughs> Right. And uh, she, she, yeah, she's, you know, she's, she's kind of a Philadelphia socialite through a, from a family that's, you know, come upon hard times, but she's about to, you know, marry, marry well into the family of uh, uh, Cal, Cal Hockley played by Billy Zane and just an iconic performance. I'm sure we'll get into a little bit. And, uh, but then, you know, she, on, on the boat, she meets Jack Dawson played by Leonardo DiCaprio, just a struggling, uh, str- a struggling artist that, you know, walks his way into through a poker game somehow into a ticket on this, on, on the Titanic as it leaves from Southampton. And, you know, they meet on the ship and, you know, they fall in love, but obviously the voyage is doomed. I think everyone knows what happens in the Titanic, so I don't need to spend that much more time on it, but that might be the most succinct uh, synopsis of a film I've ever given on this podcast. And this movie's over three hours long. So uh, we're, we're, we'll obviously get into it in more detail, but uh, where I want to start with this, Fred, because I think there's, uh, there, there's a lot to talk about with the movie and I don't necessarily, like I said, need to get so much into the nitty gritty of the plot, but uh, about, I'd say about like, you know, a week and a half ago, I get a text from you that might be the most impassioned plea ever to do a podcast because you just gotten out of that Titanic and this movie just apparently spoke to you. And I, I wasn't sure if it was like something where it was like, oh, wow, like, yeah, and seen this in quite some time and you were just blown away by getting to see it in theaters. I come to learn tonight before we start recording, you've actually seen it a lot before, but you, you went as part of this uh, 25th anniversary re-release in theaters and uh, man, I think you were just kind of blown away by getting the opportunity to see this on the big screen. And I'm wondering, what about this experience, this particular time of a movie that you have seen multiple times before, spoke to you so much that you were compelled to demand that we do a podcast on a 25-year-old movie? So yes, I have seen the movie several times, uh, probably around 10 times now. But this mm-hmm. was, in fact, the first time I've seen it on the big screen. Mm-hmm. And it was really a fascinating experience because I was always wondering why a historical epic uh, which haven't done well at the box office for several years, 
was the one that made that much money at the box office. And I think it's still a question that a lot of people are struggling to answer, including Hollywood, because if they had figured out why this movie made so much money, they wouldn't have stopped making historical epics altogether. Mm. And it was quite fascinating to experience it on the big screen because now I think I get it. Mm. Um, because I went back two days later and saw it again. And <laughs> yeah, I texted, I, for, I texted Fred and Adam because I hadn't even promised I was going to see it yet. And then I found my showing and I texted them the ticket to, to, to tell them I'm going. And five seconds later, Fred texts back. He's like, oh, there's another showing. I'll, I'll do it too if, if you want to do the podcast. I'm like, well, what kind of crazy person are you, Fred? On five seconds notice, you're able to, you're, you're just like, yep, I'll spend another three hours in this theater. <laughs> <laughs> but that's what happened over and over again in 1998. A lot and of people saw it. So a lot of yeah, a lot of people saw it multiple yeah. times. And I'm, I'm assuming like uh, most of those might not have been the same demographic as you, Fred, a 30 year old man. But you know, to each his own. <laughs> so that's interestingly enough another component that led to the movie's success. So first of all, it was spread out over several months. It wasn't an instant hit. Um, it was really driven by word of mouth. Mm -hmm. And by February 1998 every single person in America knew about the movie pretty Which much. Which is especially impressive because the word of mouth prior to it coming out was not so great. Right. And there also wasn't the internet, right? So mm -hmm. it really had to rely on people actually talking about it and telling their friends. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of it has to do with the fact that, yes, Leonardo DiCaprio was a big item at the time. He had just had a huge box office hit with Romeo and Juliet the year before, um, which kind of gave Titanic this really unfair label of a glorified chick flick for a while, which I don't think is true. But I also think what really helped it is that a lot of guys actually ended up seeing it. I mm. think there was a real like push uh, to get this into multiple demographics. And I don't think a bona fide chick flick is going to make you $2 billion at the box office. Sure. So it really spoke to a much wider audience than that, because it is not just a love story. It is also a really well done disaster movie. Um, it really takes the tragedy at the heart of Titanic seriously. Uh, and the fact that James Cameron has since then made two more hugely successful movies just kind of goes to show that he is really good at gauging what audiences want uh, and making it happen in a way that it just generates these huge hits uh, on the big screen. Never bet against Big Jim. Adam, you and Kayla invited me to go see this at a theater that is admittedly much closer to your current home than it is to mine, but like on a, on a weekend where I didn't necessarily have any specific plans and I was just like, eh, I don't really feel like driving 40 minutes south to go be sad and watch a bunch of people die. And I, I maybe I'll just run some errands. So uh, that was before Fred made the impassioned plea for me to see the movie. So I ended up like, I ended up just passing and you guys went and said it was good. And I was like, all right, cool. I don't feel so bad. I still don't feel so bad. I missed it or whatever. And, uh, and then, and then, uh, then when I finally gave in after Fred tried to get me to watch it, I was like, one thing that really struck me as I was watching it and given my initial thoughts, when you guys invited me to go down and see it in Pompano beach, I was like, Oh, wow. This movie's not as sad as I thought. You know, and it's actually, in fact, pretty damn funny at places. And I think that was part of like uh, on top of like the visuals and getting to see it in 3D and all that and just having my mind blown in that way. I think it was more just like, oh, wow, it's kind of impressive that he struck this kind of tone throughout the movie of within this particular story that he did. And I think that was his most pleasant surprise. And uh, I guess you've seen the movie a lot as well, Adam, but I'm wondering what kind of what kind of resonated with you that maybe you hadn't quite picked up on before on this viewing and getting to see it in this setting. Well, like Fred, I'd never actually seen it like on the big screen. I've only ever seen it on whatever various quality TVs I had at home. I mean, my first copy of Titanic is a literal like, you know, when you used to tape things on VHS off a TV, <laughs> like that's the first the first way I saw it. So so seeing it in theaters in 3D, like fully restored and everything like that was was really incredible. I mean, it looked amazing. Um, and as far as things like I picked up on, I mean, 
I know obviously that it's like a big, a massive pop culture, you know, item that, you know, in the nineties, it was the, the movie of the nineties, but like, you know, the fact that 25 years later, uh, I'm sitting in a theater with people, my, you know, my age, young, or older, younger, we're all kind of just like quoting movie back to the screen. It's kind of <laughs> like, it was pretty cool. Like, it's just like, okay, this is something that I love and that other people share this love for too. That was, that was really cool. And like I said, I mean, it really looked incredible on, on the big screen. So, so you had a decently, a decently full theater at that showing? Yeah, probably about half full. We saw it on like a weekend afternoon, if I remember correctly. And it was probably about half full. I saw it on a Wednesday night at 8.15 and I was the only person in my screening. So oh, uh, well. that, was, that was much different, but like, I still had, I still had a very, I still had a very good time. And you mentioned, you mentioned the 3d a couple of times there. And I, I'm, I would just say that I, I was actually really impressed with how that, you know, the, the effect that actually had on the movie. Cause even though it's a James Cameron thing, I was still like, Oh my God, I, I kind of gotten into this mindset, especially when I thought about it a little more when avatar two came out that like, man, I really don't really care about watching anything in 3d unless it's avatar. Uh, Cause like that, that worked for me, but like, you know, as I mentioned on the avatar two podcast that I did earlier this year, it feels like there was obvious a deserved uh, backlash against 3D for a while because it felt like every movie just arbitrarily got like a 3D release and like it really stuff that didn't really enhance it that much. Like, oh, cool. You used to just think of it as like the thing where stuff just flew out at you towards your face and they mm-hmm. used it for that effect. And I was like, well, how are they going to really do this with Titanic? I mean, there's nothing like that. Is it going to feel gimmicky? And I, to me, it just made the whole thing feel all the more vivid and didn't feel didn't feel uh, gratuitous at all. And that really impressed me visually. Uh, Fred, for you, what, what did you appreciate the most uh, uh, as far as what you uh, enjoyed visually in this movie, getting to see it in the theater experience? So there are various components to that. Mm-hmm. So first of all, I do think it's impressive how well the movie holds up 25 years later. And in part because I think that is because Cameron is this kind of just really workmanlike director where he prefers to use special effects that don't simply rely on CGI. Um, Back when Titanic was made, they literally built a gigantic set in a tank. And rather than just create the water artificially, they literally would, like, they kept lowering the set into the water. And that's how they filled up the hallways and the rooms and created this illusion of a sinking ship. And I actually haven't told you this yet, but I didn't actually see the movie twice. I saw it three times last week. (laughs) And the third time... There's an important caveat to that. The third time was on my old DVD set that I still have. Uh, and I did it with Jim Cameron's audio commentary, oh. which is a really interesting experience because the guy is extremely analytical. Um, also at times a little self-deprecating where he admits that uh, he can get a little crazy with these things at times. I was about to ask you how self-aware he was on it. Cause some of the coverage I've been able to consume in the last week talks about just like how no one especially enjoyed being around him on that set. That is actually true because the guy is just an absolute maniac when it comes to doing reshoots and doing multiple takes. And especially when you have to wade through ice cold water 30 times, I can see how somebody like Kate Winslet would get really fed up with that. In fact, at the time she made it well known that she would never work with this guy again. And here we are 25 years later and she has a role on Avatar 2, obviously. Jeez. So it seems like she has evolved a little bit on that. But what or, 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 or let's um, say he, or let's say he made appropriate demands. She might have been totally justified, or uh, appropriate amends. She might have been totally justified in her original sense. <laughs> well, she did say in interviews that she learned to hold her breath for like seven minutes. I think Jeez. every single cast, I think every single on, cast a, on, on Avatar two, Avatar, not on Titanic, right? On Avatar two, yes, yes, every single cast member from Avatar two has been showing off with how much uh, time <laughs> they spend in the water and how uh, great they are at diving and holding their breath now, which is kind of amazing. Mm-hmm. But it was actually really interesting to listen to that because he also gave away um, 
some of the things that went into creating the most uh, impressive visuals of the movie, which is uh, when the ship mm-hmm. is already mostly sunk and then goes up into the air because there was a very unique way of how the ship ended up breaking up and doing its final plunge into the ocean. And they actually had people on skateboards, like rolling down the ship. Uh, so you created that illusion of them going sideways down into the water. So I think it's fascinating that they were able to create such a breathtaking looking movie back in 1997 using a mixture of modern effects and practical effects that still holds up this well in 2023 on a movie screen. Yeah, I'll say there are some movies that come out today that I can like more quickly tell are on a soundstage than this one. Which is uh, pr- which is pretty impressive given the what this had to try and it, this this had the task of kind of recreating the expanse of the Atlantic. There might be a couple shots like wide shots of the ship, particularly maybe the daytime ones that are not as like convincing. But like uh, everything they do at night is like really really uh, just really quite vivid and feels like it's. I I I think I misread or misheard something. I was listening about it. I was listening to another podcast and I thought I understood it as saying they they actually shot a lot in the northern Atlantic, which uh, maybe maybe a couple things where I don't know, but like I. You could have fooled me. Like, I had no idea uh, for most of it. So uh, he just really like was on his game with respect to the visuals at that point and shows how ahead of his time he really was to be able to accomplish something like that. And then kind of was able to, you know, be ahead of the curve again when it came to actually, you know, doing computer animation really well when it got to when it got to Avatar. I, I, I guess the I guess the, the next thing I was kind of curious to ask you guys about though was one thing as I was kind of refamiliarizing myself with a lot of the coverage of the movie was that like you know, one, one thing that was stunning kind of going on Letterboxd and as someone that hadn't really thought a ton about Titanic before the re-release was just how unanimous it seems like everyone's like, this movie just absolutely rips. You know, no one, there's like, Fred, you're more of a social butterfly on Letterboxd, I'd say, than I am, but I probably only follow like, you know, 50 to 60 people. But like every, like, you know, it's a movie that's popular enough that most of the people you follow on it are going to have reviewed it and given it a rating of some sort. And it's about everyone I'm on there, I see on there is given it an average of four, four and a half or five stars, maybe a couple of fours and that's about it. Like everyone really likes this movie. No one is super cynical about it and not a lot of like hipster backlash takes to something that is like that universally beloved. So I, it just kind of blows my mind that like, you know, anything has that high of an approval rating, especially when there are some criticisms that people might have of it. But it's like in spite of that, everyone's like, you know, just overall, like is so impressed with it on the whole. But I would say like the one thing that I, I is kind of funny watching when I read these reviews is like, so a lot of people have the caveat, like, yeah, some of the writing's kind of corny, but I don't give a shit. This movie's awesome. And I'm wondering, Adam, because you laugh when I say that, and you were talking about how you were watching it with this audience and people like go back and quote some of the lines and maybe a line here, a line there that might be iconic to one person might be corny to another, but they, again, don't really care because this movie is so well done and impressive regardless. I'm wondering as you sit back and you watch it again, do you have any like, you know, kind of like, oh, I can ironically laugh at that corny line or do you actually like genuinely like not bothered by any of the writing? Because that's not just a Jim, James Cameron thing with Titanic. That's just a James Cameron thing in general, where everyone's like, this guy knows how to make a make an epic and just knows how to make an entertaining movie. I don't really give a shit if he's not the best writer of dialogue. Like as you're as you're sitting back and watching Titanic again, how do you take in this like this script and what what these people are just saying at times that, you know, might it might at some points like kind of strike people in like a wait, do people actually talk like that kind of way? Um, I, I mean, I don't know. I, I'm probably definitely more in the I don't give a shit because this movie's awesome kind yeah. of camp because like, I mean, even the lines that might be corny, I'm still like quoting back at the TV like Titanic was called the ship of dreams. And it was like, I don't care. Like, I love it. It's all like mm-hmm. the movie is so good. And most, I mean, most of the dialogue 
is quality. Like, I don't have a problem with any of it, really. Like, that even there's a couple lines that might be kind of silly or corny or whatever. I'm like, cool, let's roll with it. Like, it's never been something that I've bumped on. Yeah, I mean, Fred, it seems like you were nodding along a little bit as I was talking there. So I'm sure you've seen some of those same kind of criticisms of James Cameron, but you obviously really love this movie. And as I and I actually did read your letterbox review of it before we started recording, which I don't always do. Sometimes I like going in fresh without knowing thoughts. And I think it one one of the ways in which you said it really works for you is it works as a romance. And uh, I think you called it one of the best romantic epics you've ever seen. So, you know, I, I I sometimes feel like personally, whenever I'm watching movies like this, I might tend to be a little overly critical or just when I'm watching any kind of romance, I'm getting a little overly critical if I don't really, you know, buy that the couple is actually like that in love with each other. And I think like Leonardo DiCaprio and Kate Winslet's chemistry is so good that it doesn't bother me that these people seem to profess their love to each other after spending like, you know, like 24 hours together or anything like that. So I'm wondering, you know, how, how, how does this movie work for you just from like a, a like a, a two-hander romance perspective with respect to the writing do you think it does a good job of like efficiently like getting these people to a point where they feel this strongly about each other that they're bound together in the final act so it's an extremely difficult balancing act to pull off because on one hand you're reducing this massive tragedy down to the romance between two people and that's supposed to make it a little bit more personal (laughs) but simultaneously you do have that big disaster that's looming in the background where literally more than a thousand people are going to die And somehow you have to fit both of those elements under the same roof. And that can go seriously wrong. Exhibit A being Michael Bay's Pearl Harbor. Um, (laughs) A movie that somehow manages to both bungle its romance and to also be disrespectful to the (laughs) historical context that it attempts to tackle. Um, Which makes it all the more impressive that Titanic actually pulls it off so well and I think what you said about a lot of the reviews on Letterboxd being so positive, a big chunk of that is also just plain nostalgia because I think we don't get a lot of these movies anymore that are so unabashedly just overwritten sometimes and it's a little bit cheesy and the characters immediately profess their love for each other. But that's all fine and good because that's how Hollywood movies used to be. People would start swooning in their arms almost right away and when you have such a short time span to work with before the ship hits the iceberg, then of course you need to speed things up a little bit. And on a more serious note though, the way that that initially happens is because Jack Dawson talks Rose literally off the ledge of jumping into the ocean, a suicide attempt. Mm. And I think that's a very smart call in that moment because the movie has done quite a bit already to give us an idea of why Rose would feel that way, that she feels suffocated in this, Uh, engagement to this asshole who thinks that he can essentially buy her love when she has absolutely no interest really being with him but it's something that her mother is forcing her into and then when she meets this guy who's just so enthusiastic about life who values every second that he has air in his lungs basically every opportunity he gets to make something of himself uh, when she meets a guy like that of course she's going to be inspired to reevaluate some of the choices that forced her into her current situation. And to me, I think that kind of makes for a nice shortcut to get them where they need to be by the time the ship strikes the iceberg. Because she has made up her mind at that point that she will get off the ship with him, that she'll leave her engagement to Cal, and she'll essentially start a new life with him. And I think what Jack does for her is such a major intervention into a life she's so unhappy with, 
that I ended up buying their relationship, even though they really didn't have a lot of time to get to know each other. Yeah, it's he say he saved her in every way a person can be saved. <laughs> I, I don't even like you know, to to that point, Adam. Like, I mean, I don't I haven't seen it as much, so I don't remember as many of the lines that you know are, are again can be uh, described as iconic and corny at the same time, possibly. And I asked you guys those questions because that's something I see a lot when I read about this movie or really any of his movies. But like, if I as looking back on it now, there wasn't a single moment where I like think about it and like there was like an eye roll worthy line necessarily of writing, except for the point where like the guy is giving the lecture about the lifeboats. I'm like, okay, this is a little on the nose. You know, but 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 at the same time, like I I do actually think it's kind of funny. I I do appreciate the Fred. I do appreciate the point Fred just made in so much as I think it's funny to I I don't I think it sounds odd to call anything in like a three plus hour movie efficient. But I think they actually are pretty efficient in doing those things early in the movie that Fred mentioned as far as uh, just kind of getting you to understand where Rose is at at that point in her life, such as she would be receptive to just like the advances of someone like Jack. And I, and, and I, so I, I just think like all that really works in such a way that like, I'm the guy that has said more times that I can, I can count on this podcast. Like I hate like anything where like these pe- people fall in love over the course of a montage and I don't actually buy that they're together or buy that they would want to be together. And it's not even a thought I had in this movie with an even more compressed timeline than a lot of the rom-coms I'm usually talking about when I, when I have those kind of criticisms. So it's like, you know, I, it's just like for, every, for everything someone wants to say about James Cameron's writing, like there were probably more, you know, there might've been a few like, you know, moments in the movie not not even necessarily dialogue moments but like more like like shortcuts or just like kind of like uh, things that get quickly glossed over in the story or whatever like like something as small was like i'm like thinking in the in, at the poker game at the beginning it's like wait what did he have to put up that was the equivalent of that ticket or something like that like i <laughs> I, 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 had, I had a few moments like that where i might have thought of like some like log- logical goof or something like that but it's like those are the kind of things you forgive in a movie this epic but like i thought about that I, I picked up on things like of that nature more than i actually did on any one line of dialogue so i think that just kind of speaks to everything else this movie has going for it that like someone that's like you know maybe not as familiar with the line by line blows is not even going to like let anyone piece of dialogue just kind of stick stick in their craw just not a thing that happened for me but it was something i want to touch on you guys because it's such a common criticism of james cameron and he hasn't given us a whole lot of other other examples of other things to analyze in that regard because he's only made two movies since this one came out you know so um, quick tidbit about the poker game by the way in the audio commentary he straight up admitted that he has no idea how to play poker and that he had (laughs) to ask somebody on set the day of that scene being shot how you would actually play a game like that and what a good hand in poker would be so if some of the minutia of that poker game seem a little off to you, it's probably because the guy who wrote the script had no idea how the game is actually played. Fair enough. It doesn't matter in the grand scheme of things. You just got to get him on that boat. He gets him on the boat pretty efficiently and it's fine. Uh, so, but it was just like, I was just like, we're supposed to buy this guy's poor, but he, 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 he didn't, he didn't fold. When something as expensive as a Titanic ticket got put in, it doesn't make any sense. But it's it, it's what it's whatever. A steerage ticket. Fair enough. I mean, you know, I, that was one thing I thought was kind of funny because, like, I I've probably been I've been on a couple cruises, I guess, since the last time I saw Titanic, uh, and that was one thing that really struck me. I guess was the set design in the movie. I I I don't know if there's a lot that's novel to say about it, but it was something I wanted to touch on with you guys. I was kind of like I was kind of blown away, and I, I'm pretty sure I'm I'm guessing they were pretty um faithful to like whatever the original design of the ship was. I'm just assuming it was a. Well, I think I read somewhere some kind of life-size replica of some sort somehow and and james cameron's a titanic nut like i think half the reason he i think he said like half the reason he made the movie was because he wanted to go dive to the titanic is the so the bill paxton uh character is somewhat of an avatar no pun intended for him in a way i bet you know it seems like that might be that that might that might be like what james cameron would like actually like to do with his life is this like he he actually straight up 
he's gone 33 times. He's gone to the Titanic more than 30 times. Like he's dove to, yeah, like he's a nut. He also straight up said in the commentary that, you know, that scene where his bosses call him and ask for an update about the diamond. And he kind of has to make excuses for why (laughs) he's spending all that money and there are no results yet. He said that he very much sees himself in that as well, because (laughs) all the producers of the movie kept calling him because he was spending so much money and he had to keep making excuses for uh, why it was needed. So, yeah, that's (laughs) definitely a James Cameron stand-in interesting yeah i i it's just like i i i really enjoyed that side of it and i guess i i guess i i've never done a lot of personal research about the titanic and like the ways people like do that but i i guess what you guys are telling me is like that's an actual thing that people have done at some point like there have been people commissioned to go diving for it i suppose or some things like that that's an actual thing that's not a movie creation i think so i i can't speak oh, okay. to like i don't know a ton about like the history of dives to the titanic but i know it was like uh it was found in the 80s uh by robert ballard and since then people have you know i assume with a lot of money if you can charter an expedition you can go do it i don't think it's like specially protected or anything like that right. um but yeah like i said james cameron he, he did a documentary like two three years ago it's on disney plus about the titanic oh. and a, a mix of like the movie and the ship and make seeing if they got the um how they portrayed the singing, if they got that correct and stuff like that. Very good documentary. I've watched it once or twice, like maybe two or three times. But yeah, and that's where I know that James Cameron's a huge Titanic nut and that's gone down to the the, the wreck like dozens of times. But um, yeah, definitely highly recommend if you're listening to this podcast, like go check out that documentary. Again, it's, it's a little different asking this to you guys as people that watch the movie more regularly, but I want to ask you a little bit about the performances at this point. And I'm curious, Fred, as someone that I think, you know, has probably seen a, a lot more Leonardo DiCaprio performances in the years since you probably first saw the Titanic. I'm wondering how you look back on this performance now in the in the in the context of the of the rest of his career and like uh, just what it meant. I mean, you know, there's the there's the well, well-known story about how he turned down Boogie Nights to do this. And I think it I, I think he, he could have pulled off Boogie Nights fine. But like this obviously, you know, paid big dividends for him. And I'm wondering, like how, how you see this, like compared to a lot of others, a lot of these other performances and uh, how, what you think of his performance in Jack as you look back on it now. I think it's a good thing that he met Martin Scorsese and that Scorsese started casting him in some of his movies because I think he would have been in serious danger of uh, having been tied down by this role for a long time. He could have been, he could have been big money made. He could have had a very lucrative career just being like the heartthrob in romantic movies. Exactly, and and I mean I think he even did that for a while for a few more years. I mean he played a role in Catch Me If You Can where he's like super charismatic and kind of handsome. He had a role in The Beach. I think two years after Titanic came out. That was the next, that was the next thing in, he did. He took a while and just didn't do anything besides that. Yeah. Right. And then in 2002, he did Gangs of New York. And in 2004, he did The Aviator. So that's mm-hmm. when things kind of changed for him. And it became clear that this guy has the ability to carry a three-hour movie that's not just this big romance, but also a huge character study about uh, a guy who's as messed up as Howard Hughes was. Mm-hmm. And I think he was in a very different spot in his career at the time than Kate Winslet was. They had both been Oscar nominated at that point already. Uh, DiCaprio had gotten his big breakthrough in What's Eating Gilbert Grape a few years earlier. Uh, but Kate Winslet had already established herself as a major actress in historical period dramas. Um, in fact, James Cameron said uh, when he initially cast her, she was kind of known as Corset Kate because she had already got an, an Oscar nomination for Sense and Sensibility. So people kind of associated her with those roles. Um, and he was almost worried that he was going to put an actress in the movie that was already sort of typecast in these parts. 
Um, and it's really interesting to see Leo DiCaprio in this role now, 25 years later, when he's added so many more iconic performances to his resume. Same with Kate Winslet, really. Right. Uh, and it's kind of unusual that you get two actors in a movie that was as big who managed to branch out and really diversify their portfolios in a way that they're still able to surprise you in 2023 with some of the roles that they take on. I mean, Kate Winslet just did Mayor of Easttown last year. Uh, Leo DiCaprio, he's uh, going to be in another Scorsese movie this year, Killers of the Flower Moon. Uh, so still very highly prolific actors who are really able to branch out in a lot of different ways. And when you see this movie in theaters now, 25 years later, you're almost kind of surprised that this is where they ultimately got their start. It's also funny. They were both obviously big stars for this. So I guess uh, I think a lot of people know the story at this point. Leonardo DiCaprio, controversially not nominated for an Academy Award for this, boycotted the Oscars as a result. So probably not his finest moment, but uh, regardless, everyone obviously like, you know, very much respected his role in this, but then both of them as big stars as they were in that moment, they not, both of them had to wait a while to actually win an Oscar and both at the, at the point at which both of them did, it was even though they were in their like thirties and forties respectively, I guess it was more of like a, even so relatively young, all things considered, uh, were like it was like almost an it's time narrative, you know, like oh they're overdue, and she 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 got nominated a few more times before she won for the reader and him for a ton of other things before he finally won for the revenant. So, uh, you know, just while it was a springboard to bigger and better things, didn't exactly necessarily lead to like automatic success, uh, with 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 Oscars, but uh, they they both eventually got there. Adam, uh, I, I I'm I'm kind of curious what, what what your thoughts are watching those what, what those lead performances as well as as far as like you know are you are you as charmed as ever like watching Leonardo DiCaprio as Jack because I one thing I didn't necessarily recall realize as I was like going back to rewatch this because again I'd only really watched it once before was like uh, just I mean I get it that he was like a romantic guy but I didn't understand everything he really has to do in this movie and in, in so much as like uh, you know he has to be incredibly likable but like. I guess I just, and I, I knew it was like, he was the poor guy kind of ingratiating himself with them, but like, I didn't realize, I didn't quite remember like how he got put through the ringer in the way he did, whether it be like getting thrown into that France fancy dinner or basically getting thrown on, thrown in cruise jail. Like he has to actually do a lot of different things. I'm wondering like how impressed you were watching him like navigate the whole fish out of water thing, uh, you know, within this movie where, you know, there's a lot of water around him, I suppose. Yeah. Well, first, I, you mentioned that like uh, he turned down Boogie Nights to do Titanic, mm -hmm. which had me thinking of him and Mark Wahlberg swapping, like swapping roles and Mark Wahlberg playing <laughs> Mark can, Wahlberg playing that. Jack, <laughs> playing Jack with a heavy Boston accent. Like, <laughs> you ever been to Revia, kid? <laughs> like, oh no! God, yeah, no, I had I had that thought too when I heard people talk about. It. I was like, yeah, look, I, I, you, I, Leo could one hundred percent pull up Boogie Nights. Mark Wahlberg and Titanic is a completely different movie. <laughs> Hey, I'm Jack Dawson. I can't, I don't know. I can't read really your Boston accent. But, um, but yeah, no, I mean, like Leo is, is obviously incredible in this movie. Uh, like most of the, most of the cast, like it's one of those things that I love it so much that I can't really have like an unbox. Like, everything is colored by the fact that I love it so much. So like, I'm like, yeah, everyone's a 10 out of 10 in this movie. Like even Billy Zane. Even, especially Billy Zane. Okay. <laughs> especially Billy Zane. Billy Zane's throwing a hundred miles an hour in this movie. Like he kills it. But yeah, no, I mean like, Leo does an amazing job. I mean, the uh, the dinner scene, the fancy dinner scenes, like maybe in my top three scenes in the whole movie. Right. Like yeah. it's an incredible scene. He does an amazing job in it. That's like one of that's that might be like top three, like Leo acting sequences ever for me. For sure. Uh, you know, for sure. Because it's like he has to like put on like like he knows that they know that he's like not well off, but he wants to like, you know, at least prove to them like, you know, he's like, you know, still like a 
uh, an impressive enough guy and he projects confidence throughout that dinner and like handles himself well and, you know, has a few good rejoinders and one-liners in response to the off-color things people say to him. And it just, you know, puts on a very good face. But at the same time, you know, like as the audience, because we just, we know a little bit more about what he's thinking in those moments. Like, I do think you can like, see his discomfort while he's projecting confident at the same time. Like it's just, yeah, a he's, very, he's, it's like, a very he's, he's asking, he's asking Kathy Bates, like, how do I use all this silverware? What do I do mm-hmm. here? Like, uh, you know, I don't know what I want. I don't like caviar very much. Never been, never been my favorite or ever, you know, <laughs> like he's, he's able to like, uh, make his way through, like, uh, which is something I wouldn't have caught really as a kid. Like, okay, he's poor. He's at a fancy dinner. I get it. But like, now it's like, oh, like having been, you know, fish out of water before in my life. I'm like, oh, I get how uncomfortable this would be. Yeah. Are you yeah. off Boston Dawson's? No, the triple off Fox Dawson's. Oh, oh, yes, yes, yes. <laughs> I forgot. I, I forgot that line. No, I, I, I really enjoyed that. And yeah, I just like, I just thought like he, he, it was just very impressive the way he projected that level of discomfort, but also exuded charm at the same time. Just not an easy thing to do at all. I'm curious. Uh, I, I, I got some bigger picture things I want to ask you guys about the production and just the entire second half of the movie. But I'm curious, Fred. Any other? Were there any other like? Um, because it's it's kind of like the movie's also kind of like a who's who of character actors popping up in a lot of these other parts, and I'm wondering if there's anyone else that you are that you that whose performances on on here beyond uh, Billy Zane and Kate Winslet and Leonardo DiCaprio, are there any other performances that like you especially like you know have a soft spot for or, like really appreciate what they're able to do in their limited screen time? Quite a few actually, and I think I sometimes almost get the sense, and this might be a little bit unfair to James Cameron, that the romantic aspect of the movie is the one he's least interested in, because sometimes I get the sense that he is really such a history buff that he really wanted to make a movie about all of those peripheral characters on the Titanic. Because a lot of the others are based on real people. Yeah, they're they're based on real people and they all have like really fascinating backstories. Uh, One of my favorites here being uh, Victor Garber's performance as Thomas Andrews, for example, a guy who was well known for being extremely modest and humble and that he got along very well with the people who worked for him. He was the guy who uh, designed and really was in charge of building the Titanic in Belfast. Um, God, I, yeah, I, he, he was the one I was going to highlight too. It was just like me not knowing like a ton about it, the story going in. I was just like really impressed by, I mean, who knows exactly like, well, you, I guess you said he, people did know his personality a little bit, but I, I didn't know it. And I, so I, I wasn't sure how much was a movie creation and what wasn't, but like, I really appreciated how it's like the look on that guy's face, like the whole movie, you know, and that he's not like defensive trying to like defend the ship or anything like that. He just has like a, a, a real look of discomfort, like the entire time in such a convincing way. Right. And he really understands uh, what the dangers are that the ship is facing as soon as it actually strikes the iceberg and false hubris doesn't get in the way of him uh, trying to save as many people as possible. Mm-hmm. And that is historically accurate. Like okay. he went around the entire evening helping out people. And there, there were accounts that he was on deck basically until the very end, throwing chairs into the water so people could hold on to them. And I find it fascinating because his uncle was apparently the, the director and founder of the company that built the Titanic. So he was always accused uh, of nepotism his entire life. So he tried really hard to counter steer against those accusations Hmm. um, by being just very relatable and trying to get along with as many people as possible. And there are small scenes like that too, where Jack comes down into the dining room when he's back in his uh, third class attire. And Thomas Andrews still acknowledges him, says hi to him. He's very nice to him. Uh, So I thought that was a very excellent portrayal of just somebody who hangs out with people in first class but really also identifies with some of the other passengers on the ship as well 
Um, and I could really go down the entire mm -hmm. list here. Like Bernard Hill is very good as Captain Smith, uh, known for his performance in Lord of the Rings as King Theoden outside of this one, really able to convey just the paralysis and shock of somebody who doesn't really know how to deal with a major crisis, especially since this was his very last voyage before his retirement, and he had never faced anything like this before. And there are really just a whole bunch of other just fascinating figures on the ship that aren't even defined by their performances, but that Cameron is very capably introducing to us uh, in a way where we care enough about them that some of their fates later on really hit hard. Benjamin Guggenheim, for example, very minor character here, uh, but he gets that wonderful line at the end where he says, we're dressed in our best and we're going out like gentlemen. Uh, just really powerful moment for a character who really didn't have that much screen time. And that's kind of what leads me to believe that Cameron, even though of course the romance is the focal point of the movie, is really also quite fascinated by all of the other passengers on the ship, many of which didn't end up surviving. Adam, uh, were there any, 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 other, uh, any, other, any other character moments or uh, supporting performances that you wanted to uh, give a little love to? Um, let's see. Yeah, there's a couple. I mean, one that's interesting, speaking of characters who were real people, um, James Cameron apologized for his depiction of uh, the first officer, Murdoch, because he portrays him as like having shot someone. He shoots Tommy Ryan um, in the movie. In real life, there's no that didn't happen. Um, mm. And there's no evidence to think he was corrupt or, or would have any, ever done anything like that. Um, just, I glanced at the Wikipedia page and like uh, Fox like donated, like took a Someone, uh, Fox vice president went to Scotland where Murdoch lived to deliver an apology and present a donation to like a local high school for like a memorial fund or scholarship in for Mur in Murdoch's name. Uh, because they they kind of did him bad, and I think that's also touched on in the documentary I mentioned earlier, where like this is a movie that like tens of millions, hundreds of millions of people saw, and it makes this guy look pretty bad. Um, sure, so sure. He, he did try to set the record trade a little bit, but it did impact like the family and stuff. Like it was something that bothered them. Um, I think Kathy Bates as, um, the unsinkable Molly Brown is great. Uh, she's really fun whenever she's on screen. Uh, like, like Fred was saying about, about Benjamin Guggenheim, you also had, um, Isidore and Ida Strauss who were passengers on the Titanic who really did like choose to say like, we're not going to be split up. We're old. Like we're going out together you know, in a beautiful our moment. Yeah. 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 Um, there's a lot of stuff like that, like a lot of little touches that really are not like the focus of the movie, but are great little moments or great little uh, characters that only play a bit role, which kind of the fact that he, he didn't have to incorporate all these real people into the story, but it just shows that, like, you know, we may have heard all these other people's stories, but well, you know, everyone, there's, you know, a couple, like, you know, probably 2,000 plus people on this boat. And they all have their individual stories of what they went through that night. You know, a lot of them ended that night, but they all have these stories of what happened. Yeah. Uh, as far as like the other people in, uh, as far as people on the ship, I, I want to shout out. I, I also want to give a shout out to the, to the, to the musicians who, uh, you know, wanted to, you know, go out honorably uh, playing uh, when they knew like, Hey, we're, 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 we're not, we're not important enough to get a spot on that life, but we're going to go and try and make things as, as, as quaint and nice for people as possible. And like, they, they, they were really portrayed as like, you know, honorable guys that were just like doing their job to the bitter end. And I, I just, I, I liked, the, I liked the faces those guys put on. Uh, and, but and yeah. two, two amazing lines surrounding that where like one of the guys is like, 
nobody's listening to us. And they're like, well, they don't listen to us at dinner either. So, <laughs> and then, and then also, uh, what Tommy Ryan running by is like, ah, music to drown by. Now I know I'm in first class. Like, <laughs> there's so many little lines that are just that are just bangers. Yeah. The other thing I want to give a shout out to, because we didn't talk a ton yet about the, we, we didn't talk a ton yet about the 1996 sequences, but like, I mean, I did want to give a shout out to like Gloria Stewart, who plays the, plays the 101 year old Rose, who you got, did get an Oscar nomination for best supporting actress, which is super cool uh, that she was able to, to get that at that point in her life. Cause she'd obviously been uh, acting for quite some time. And also Bill Paxton is Brock Lovett, because as I was telling Adam and Fred before the things, before we started recording, like I hadn't seen this movie in some time and I didn't remember those sequences at all. I thought it was like, like, an opening sequence showing the old rose like dreaming and like thinking i didn't realize there was like actually this much story in that part of the movie and there's a version of a movie that's not done as well where it, it just feels too bogged down and too laborious and getting to the point and getting back and getting to 19 uh, and getting to 1912 or i think that i i think it just it, it's actually really compelling watching them like do all this underwater investigating and i think uh bill paxton's enthusiasm and you know and Gloria Stewart's charm really go a long way in those moments. So I want and to make sure we shouted a, them out. A, a great part, and maybe it's maybe it was meant to be meta, maybe it wasn't. But the fact that like it cuts back to them for the first time in more than an hour, and like half the crew is sitting there listening to her like this. Like <laughs> you can't, it's audio medium, so you can't see. Me, but they're all at rapt attention listening to her story, and she hasn't even gotten to the point that they're interested in yet, which is the actual sinking. <laughs> but like half the crew is is just listening to her tell the story. That is a very good point. I was just going to say, what's also kind of fascinating is that those scenes in 1996 were shot a lot earlier uh, than the mm. 1912 ones. Mm. Uh, they were actually shot by a different cinematographer than the guy who was ultimately credited on the movie um, because this was really just a whole bunch of like different production stuff that they were doing at the time. Uh, and they hadn't even finished building the 1912 set yet. And the other thing that's uh, kind of funny, by the way, uh, the actress who plays Rose's granddaughter uh, is now James Cameron's wife. Yeah, oh. so I think he might have still been married to Catherine Bigelow during this movie, right? And then he ended up getting married to uh, to 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 uh, to that to that actress. It's just kind of funny. Um, yeah, him and Catherine Bigelow. No, 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 never mind. Him and Catherine Bigelow got divorced in 1991. I take that back. But no, he. Oh, it's funny because they still married, made married to Linda Hamilton together in 1995. Yeah, no, married to Linda Hamilton, who he obviously made the Terminator movies with. Got, they got married in 1997, uh, but then he ended up getting married to uh, Susie Amos in 2000. So after he and uh, he and Linda Hamilton are only married for a couple of years. So, uh, you know, uh, I guess, you know, good for him that he, uh, you know, met the love of his, met the ultimate love of his life, because uh, I think they're, they're, they've now been together over 20 years. Uh, guys, we barely actually talked about the ship sinking, uh, which I think is uh, kind of notable and speaks to just how impressive this movie is, that it's so fun to talk about and reminisce about uh, without the actual, like, you know, meat of the story and what is what ultimately happens to the ship and as you astutely mentioned fred before we talk before we started recording i think most of the interesting stuff to talk about this movie is just is, is not that you know it's a lot about what the movie what the movie means in historical retrospect and a lot of the things around it and a lot of just the fun stuff in it as i kind of mentioned now like i just the movie's just more fun than i realized so it's fun to talk about the other stuff but i want to say the one thing i kind of found myself really uh that i really appreciated as i was watching the entire back half of this movie which i was just dreading i thought it was just gonna be really depressing and first of all there are a few comedic moments during that adam mentioned a couple of the fun lines even in something like his as like what should be as harrowing as like rose trying to like go 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 get jack when she's like he's handcuffed it's like the hilarious sequence with the axe like they find they find room for like stuff like stuff like that that's like legitimately hilarious in the midst of something terrible but on top even beyond that i think the thing that struck me most as i was watching it is i had this realization that like uh, even knowing what i knew about cameron being apparently a terror on set in some ways as i was watching it i was like damn this is just an impressive feat of like 
directorial management in some way to even, even if you like, maybe it was a hectic set in some ways. It's like the fact that he even got it to this point, it just shows this guy knows how to like, you know, get, get a film to come, get a film to the f- fucking finish line where it's like every single, it's like every single shot of this movie, Fred, I'm like, God, like how many things had to be in place perfectly to get that shot. Right. And beyond just like, you know, how, you know, uh, emotional certain sequences in that are and how what you're feeling for the characters. I actually found myself more just thinking about just how impressive of a technical feat it was as I watched the entire like final hour of this movie. What really stands out in your mind, especially getting to watch it on the big screen as you were watching the him actually have like the most vis- the, the most like filmmaking flexes uh, as he does at any point in the movie, I would say. Yeah, so I think I mentioned this earlier. So the way they got a lot of those shots is by lowering the set into the water very slowly and that's how they flooded the corridors and the rooms and the stairwells and every sh- every, be- every every shot where like water burst through a window i'm like they had they probably like they either have to get that right the first time or it's a whole fucking ordeal to get it again yeah that's the problem so they had to like rise it back up out of the water then they had to dry everything off for several <laughs> hours and then they had to do it again so yeah it would take forever sometimes to get those shots I mean, some of the stuff like the scene where they flood the dining room and the big staircase with the grand um, words are failing me. The you roof, know, uh, a roof. Glass, oh, I don't know. The glass roof. Staircase. Yeah. Uh, oh. There's a word for that. The, yeah, the, the, gl- the glass ceiling above the above the. Yeah, staircase. exactly. So they could only shoot that once because they essentially destroyed the entire set uh, in that shot. So that had to be perfect the first time. But outside of the technical aspects, what I find really fascinating about the movie is that I think Cameron gets what happens in a moment of crisis, which is that there are acts of genuine courage and bravery, like what Thomas Andrews was doing, trying to save people, what the band was doing. They knew that they were doomed, so they kept on playing. But for the most part, people just go into sheer panic mode, trying to survive. And it's really quite harrowing what happens when people reach that point, because you see acts of just tremendous cowardice, exhibit A of that being J. Bruce Ismay, uh, who was one of the um, like managing directors of uh, the company that built the Titanic and who was also on board and who was also one of the first people on a lifeboat, essentially, uh, to make sure that he got off the ship. And you can see people just trying to push each other out of the way. There are moments where the officers are having a really hard time maintaining control Um, where people are trying to just flood the lifeboats. Lifeboats get like, they descend upon each other and they almost crush the people underneath them. So you just have this moment of like absolute calamity because they know that time is running out. I mean, they see the water coming up and that the ship is going to be underneath the ocean very quickly. And it's just harrowing to imagine being in that situation because once all of your survival instincts kick in and you know that the lifeboats are filling up quickly, all bets are off. And it's just really mesmerizing to see that after you just had one half of the movie being this romantic epic, essentially, to flip the switch and turn into a full-on disaster movie. And that's a really fine balancing act, as I said earlier, and I think Cameron pulls it off really quite remarkably. I'll say I also like the creeping dread of just like, you know, like you said, the, the uh, Victor Garber's is Andrews, right? I, yes. yeah, well, like you said, he, he identifies what's going on like right away, you know, like, yeah, it hits it, it, the, the ship shakes for a second, but like you wouldn't really be any none for the wiser once you woke up, you know, you'd be like, okay, it feels fine. Like you, we know what's coming. And then like him in that moment as a person knew what was coming, even if things felt fine for like, 
you know, at least a brief interval before like the ship started taking on too much water and all that. And like, I just think it's, it's like, I think, I just think the dread is ratcheted up in a very effective way where it's like, yeah, it might, it might, everything might feel normal for a minute at first, but like things, this, the, the, the pace with which it just picks up and becomes even more dire is really impressive. Um, Adam, what really kind of sticks with you about the entire uh, shipwreck sequence? Oh man. I mean, the, well, obviously number one is propeller man who falls off the back of the ship and oh. <laughs> with a, which it's like, it's so it's like darkly comedic just with the sound. Um, I think you can buy an action figure of that guy somewhere. I think it, <laughs> I saw like a picture of it on Reddit. Maybe, maybe it didn't, maybe it doesn't actually exist. I don't know, but uh, like what stands out about the back half of the movie? I mean, like I, I, it feels like a cop out, but like everything, like Fred was saying, just like the ship descending into, into just sheer chaos, the realization, because like, it sets it up in the beginning of the movie like this ship's not supposed to sink like it's supposed to be like pretty much sink proof um and the like you know the fact that this dawning realization among everyone and realizing that they have to fight to survive and realizing that some people are realizing that they're not going to survive that they're not going to survive because they're men and they can't get on a lifeboat or they're in third class and like there's i'm just gonna put my kids to bed instead of trying to have them spend their last few moments in a panic that's a wreck um, me like that is like the saddest scene in the entire yeah. movie from the mother reading that bedtime story to her two children as the water comes up around them yeah, yeah. One, thing, one thing we didn't really talk about that much yet is like because it's i mean no one's ever gonna look we've all sung the praises so far but like you know one, no one's ever gonna like accuse james cameron of being a subtle filmmaker you know and like the fact is like this movie does have something on its mind about class and it's obviously very explicit the way like uh, the ship is divided we see we get to see like i said the i was impressed with the set design of these really like these really fancy uh these fancy cabins and then you see where uh jack is staying you know it's very it's very clear like what's going on at the top of the ship versus what's going on at the bottom and even more kind of like appalling like the priority with which people are given lifeboats but i mean is that some? What are you thinking as you guys watch that and see just how they're, they're treated like that, especially in uh, as the shipwrecks happening? Well, well, it is accurate. If you look at like yeah. the survival rates of of like people who got off the ship, it's like first class women. It's like ninety eight percent. Like basically every woman in first class survived. So yeah, so like basically everyone survived. You know, first I, did, class, I, I, did, I didn't realize it was that high. Yeah, like almost every first class woman survived. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I think like first class men. I'm I'm ballparking it might be like 60 70 percent i don't know exactly but it gets progressively lower and then third class men it's like very very low you know like they just were treated like that um and you know and people one of the comments the movie is making is that you know even in in the moment of crisis when it should be everyone trying to work together to survive you got like rose's mother who's like will the lifeboats be seated according to class and even and yeah, Rose is even like so disgusted that she's just like, "Oh, mother, don't you understand? Like, half the people in this boat are gonna die." It's like it. It's really. It, and there's a lot to say about class, and it says it throughout the whole movie, but it's made starkest at the end. The problem is also that the crew wasn't really trained in how to operate the lifeboats properly. Hmm. Uh, they hadn't really gone over that because obviously, why would you need lifeboats in an unsinkable ship? Uh, and there were conflicting instructions floating around uh, on one side of the ship murdoch was letting on this is historically accurate by the way so on one side of the ship murdoch was letting women and children on first and then when there were men around and there were still seats in the lifeboat he would let the men on but on the other side of the ship uh, there was second officer lightholer and lightholer misinterpreted smith's instructions 
and very strictly enforced that no men could go on the boat. Uh, even if there were still seats uh, and there were men in the area, he would just like lower the lifeboats into the water so only the women and children could get away. And they touch, and they touch on that in the movie, how like they were making some screw-ups in that regard. Mm-hmm. Yeah, really fascinating, by the way. And I only read up on this very recently. So Lightholer, the guy who only lets the women and children on, he survived uh, the Titanic disaster. And he actually, during the evacuation of Dunkirk uh, in 1940, uh, he came over to France in his private ship, in his private yacht, and helped huh. uh, evacuate people from the beach. Now, let me ask you this. Does that sound familiar at all? Oh, is that the... Um, oh, that God. is the Mark Rylance character. character in Dunkirk, yeah. Yes, okay. in Dunkirk by Christopher Nolan. That is the same character, yes. Wow. So, I that. He, yeah, I didn't either. So a uh, really fascinating bit of history, like somebody who was involved in like such a major maritime disaster uh, several decades later helped uh, save people uh, in another uh, quite uh, well, he couldn't, he couldn't, moment in history. He couldn't, he, he couldn't save Barry Keoghan. <laughs> um, yeah, uh, yeah, just as for saying, the Titanic, like, I mean beyond being a great setting for a tragic romance, like is endlessly fascinating. Like there's a reason why people become obsessed with it. It is incredibly fascinating. God. Yeah. I, I, I didn't necessarily know all those stats about just like uh, what the survival rates were. That's very, it's, it's very interesting. During that, we, we didn't talk a ton about Jack and Rose during the sequence. I mean, like, but again, I guess I I guess one thing, like you said, Adam, you thought no notes, 10 out of 10 for Billy Zane. Uh, I, I will say for me, one thing that like, uh, took me out of it for a second was like when he straight up became a murderer at one point like that's if, if that's, that's the one point where it was like it, it felt like it took things a bit too far it's like i don't even know if the movie I, it's like at that point it's like i don't know if the movie's trusting just how compelling it is without that it's like it, we, we needed something else and that's like one thing i don't think it necessarily needed but like attempted again, murderer attempted murderer Oh, fair, fair, fair point. You know, someone, someone, someone needs to stick up for poor Cal. Uh, thank you for, th- thank you for making sure uh, his name is his good name. He, is not he did, he did wish them well at the end. He said, "I hope you two enjoy your time together." Well, it felt like he like flip flopped like five different times on if he was going to do the honorable thing or not in the last like in, in in the last hour. So like I couldn't keep up with like if we actually left him on a good note or not. You know, so no, uh, he, he's he's an asshole. Like it's <laughs> he's an asshole the entire time. Well, it's a, you know, at one point he does like wish them well. And that's like, I think before the murder happens, because he gets mad when she gets off the boat, uh, gets off the lifeboat, uh, get to go be with him again. So he's just all over the place and like just a, a crazy person. And so, I mean, like, you know, I think you, you need to not like that guy to get, get as invested in the love story as you do. So I think he, he, he accomplishes his job in that regard. I don't even blame Billy Zane, even as over the top as it might be in points. It was more just like, all right, Jim, you didn't need to like you didn't need to make him an attempted murderer here. Like he's already like enough of a, he's already enough of a sleaze on his own. The performance is good enough. You don't need the help of him, like turning into a, you know, a, a crazy guy with a gun in the midst of this other thing where people have more important stuff going on. So. Well, I, I don't think, I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't think he actually, like he doesn't actually wish so well. Like, the whole point, I don't um is that he's, he's not letting Rose go to Jack. Uh, right. He puts, he puts the diamond uh, like in the jacket and puts the jacket on her uh, so that she'll have to come back to him. Um, and he expects, like when she's going down in the boat, he expects to be able to get on another lifeboat and Jack will drown and that'll be the end of that. And he'll get back with her after, you know, they're both safely in New York or whatever. So when she gets off the boat or gets off the lifeboat and runs back onto the Titanic, that's when he just like loses, loses his mind. Because at the point before that, he's like, I always win. He's like, no matter what, I win. Um, so, yeah, I, I mean, I think he's pretty, what's the word? Um single-minded i don't think he i mean like until the very end where he's like at the end he's just like okay i have to figure out a way to survive this now like i'm done i gotta i gotta go 
So interestingly enough, that scene where he runs after them down the stairs and takes Lovejoy's gun and starts shooting at them, mm-hmm. and then he realizes that the code is on her and the diamond is still in it, that scene originally went on considerably longer. If you go into the deleted scenes, there's actually a six, seven, eight minute segment right after where he sends Lovejoy after them into the dining room. Uh, and mm-hmm. there's this big scene where the dining room slowly floods and Lovejoy searches for them. And then there's actually a big fist fight uh, between Jack and Lovejoy that Jack ends up winning and then he and Rose end up getting away. And apparently that scene scored horribly with test audiences because they didn't buy at that point in time that. In a sinking ship that was filling up with water, Lovejoy would essentially waste his time on these two as opposed to trying to get to safety with Cal. And they shortened that scene by a couple of minutes because Cameron was very proud of the set piece. It was really well done. They flooded the entire dining room. It cost a lot of money. And then they did another test screening and people still hated the scene. (laughs) So that's when they ended up taking it out altogether. So originally there was supposed to be a lot more to all of that. Uh, but then they realized, no, now Cal and Lovejoy really need to get off the ship because it's about five minutes before midnight here. And it seems increasingly likely that Jack and Rose are just going to go down with the ship anyway. So why are they still wasting their time going after them when nature is going to take its course there? And I think that was a smart choice. I, I don't think that's really the best course of action, even for a character as demented as Cal to still bother with them at that point. And and it gave me it gave me my maybe my personal favorite like random line that I happen to love, which is when you know Billy Zane stops chasing them and Lovejoy he starts laughing and Lovejoy's like, what could possibly be funny? He's like, I put the diamond in the coat pocket. I put the coat on her. Like it's it's it's, it's just, I don't know why that line has just embedded itself in my brain, but I I quote that line with my family probably more than maybe any other line in the movie, and I don't know why it just happened like that. Any other thoughts, guys, on like the 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 ending in the the final nineteen ninety six part of the sequence? Like, you know, once you've seen the movie a lot and you kind of know where it's going, where it's like she pulls out the diamond in the end, maybe that moment doesn't hit as hard. But like, I I, I certainly had it in the back of my mind as I'm watching. It's like because it doesn't really address it for a while after he says that she's not like you don't see her finding it in in nineteen twelve. You know, uh, and so I'm like, hey, he he made the thing about the jacket, and then and I, and I just didn't remember actually the the, the the her pulling out the diamond, her, the 101 year old Rose pulling out the diamond, and all of a sudden like, it's like, oh wow, like that's a part of this movie. After like, I, I kept wondering when they were coming back to it after that line that Adam was just talking about. So I think that's probably like a oh shit moment the first time like people saw that in the theaters or whatever. But so that's like obviously a lot of what that uh, people probably remember about that last scene. But I mean, uh, I kind of mentioned it in the context of those performances in the first part of the movie do you have any other thoughts though fred on like just how this movie kind of like bounces back to the quote-unquote present or 1996 uh, there was actually an alternate ending that they shot that was considerably longer uh where lovett actually sees that she has the diamond and he's all pissed that she didn't tell him about it and then she essentially allows him to make the choice whether to take the diamond or whether he realized now that it's not all about wealth and money, but really just about the historical context of Titanic and all the people who died. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then, of course, he does the honorable thing, and the diamond still ends up in the water after that. And Cameron eventually came to the realization, A, that people don't really care about these characters anymore, because they've just spent so much time in 1912, they really just want to see what happens with Rose. Uh, and I also don't think it really rings true for the character, because... I think Lovett does learn a bit of a lesson during that story because now he has a human element to the Titanic story and not just the financial one that he's always been chasing after. 
But I still don't think he would have been as willing to just give up that big diamond when it's dangled right in front of his face. It's a big, it's a big rock. It's a big <laughs> yeah. rock. It, it, would, it would have felt a little convenient for sure. And like just to to get some, to kind of like, you know, teach everyone a lesson as, as opposed to necessarily be in keeping with what we what little we do already know about that character for sure. Um, right. Which brings us then to the actual final scene and the mystery of what really happens to Rose there, whether mm-hmm. she is dying and going to heaven and reunited with everybody from the Titanic, or whether she is dreaming and just now being reunited with Jack, uh, somebody who's only been alive in her memory for the past 84 years, as she says so nice and poetically. Yeah, I didn't realize uh, there was, really, I, I didn't realize there was actually a big debate about that. Yeah, yeah it's, actually yeah. Really, it's super funny because the commentary that Cameron does, you get to that final scene and you expect uh, to get his perspective on it. And what he does is, uh, you know, guys, I know you bought this super expensive DVD set and are probably expecting answers from me, but nah, it's up <laughs> to you guys to figure that out. <laughs> I like that. I mean, there wasn't, I mean, he says that he knows, of course, what the intention was when that scene was shot, what was in his mind and what he intended to portray. But he is not going to give it away and spoil it for everyone. That is up to everybody else. To She's a hundred. Thought- does it really matter that much? She's a hundred and one. How no. much time did she really have? Left? I, I mean, I, I understand that it's, not it's kind of supposed to be like i guess supposed to be ambiguous or it's allowed to be ambiguous i think she dies both because it just kind of makes sense that like i mean it's kind of makes sense and also like because the line earlier uh after the sinking where jack says you're gonna die an old lady warm in her bed and she's asleep in bed not her bed but asleep in bed and she passes away etc and about the in approximately the same coordinates that he told her that (laughs) yeah yeah uh my Oh uh, my! My thoughts on the end of the movie, uh, kind of more more memey, I guess. But like, it's kind of kind of ridiculous when you think about it. Like, keep in mind, this is eighty four years after she last saw Jack. She's since had a family, been married, and she's like, you know, like <laughs> yes, her exactly. her husband, her loving husband of who knows decades or whatever, who went through her whole life and had a whole family with her. It's just like off the side, like this guy who you knew for a week, eighty years ago. Really, that's that's who you just spend eternity with, not not me. The father of your children, <laughs> yes. your loving companion for most of your life. This guy you've known for you knew for five days, really. Um, I was I always that's funny. I mean, is is it important? No, but like it's just funny. But she also uh, she also had pictures of her family, like not her husband I, though. I don't think not her husband. Oh, I, I thought the, I thought maybe he was in one of them, but either way, could be wrong. It's still I fucked up. Either way, it's like there it's like all these other pictures, all these other pictures of this family she had with that guy and a whole life. Like just laid out on her bed because she always travels with her photographs, which I guess is an old person thing. I don't know, but they're all laid out next to her bed as she's like dreaming of spending eternity with Jack. It's kind of messed no, up. I want to be kind of... I want to be seventeen and spend it with this guy I knew for a week. Um, the other thing that I wanted to mention at the end is that it contributed very importantly and crucially to another seminal pop culture moment a few years later. Uh, Britney Spears hit "Oops, I Did It Again," mm. where there's a little break in the in the song where they're like. He like I guess like the the love interest in the song uh, presents her with the diamond and she's like but I thought the old lady dropped it into the ocean at the end and he's like well baby I went down and got it for you which that that oops I did it again music video very big for nine year old Adam okay is a very important <laughs> in my life uh, uh, noted <laughs> um, <laughs> when are we doing that podcast the oops I did it again music video podcast. I don't know, but now, 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 now you're making me seriously consider going and using that as the intro music for the podcast. If I feel like making the effort to do it, uh, Fred, uh, any, uh, any other, any other, any, what, what, what else haven't we talked about? Cause I'm sure you have plenty of thoughts well, on the movie. Adam actually offered us, 
Adam offered us the perfect transition here. Oh, uh, okay. We haven't talked about James Horner's score yet. Well, um, yeah, I was going to talk because, about him. I was going to ask if you had thoughts on that or Celine Dion. So. Uh, yeah, so uh, first of all, uh, rest in peace. Uh, super tragic when he passed away 10 years ago. I still remember that uh, because he actually died in a plane crash, if I remember correctly. Uh, so he actually wasn't the one who scored uh, the second Avatar movie. D- died in June 2015, actually. So about eight, less than eight years ago, actually. Oh, it was about eight years ago. Okay, yeah. Um, but really just an impressive achievement, that score. Uh, incorporates a lot of my uh, favorite instruments and my favorite influences, which is to say Irish and Celtic music, um, which I find extremely beautiful. And the Celine Dion song was more of an accident almost because they weren't quite sure yet what to do with the end credits. And apparently Cameron just really hates songs in movies. Mm. So Horner like secretly recorded the song with Celine Dion without him knowing. And he had to make sure that he would catch Cameron in a good moment. And then he played the song for him and Cameron actually really warmed up to it. Um, I I didn't know Horner scored Field of Dreams. Wow, that's interesting. Oh yeah, he has like a, he has a super long resume of. Uh, I think he scored Braveheart too, actually. Correct. Um, yep. And Apollo thirteen. Which, uh, yeah. Yeah. So he yeah he quite quite a resume. And the funny thing is, you always know when he's like providing the score because it's just always a little bit too over the top emotional in a good <laughs> way. Uh, but you can always tell because he also did the perfect storm. And there is a scene where the like fishing boat comes into the port at the very beginning. And if I immediately thought, and I hadn't, I didn't know at that point yet that he was the one who scored the perfect storm. I thought, wow, it almost sounds like the Titanic is coming into port right now with that fishing boat coming in. And then I saw it was actually James Horner who scored that movie. So he always had a very distinct style uh, that really lends itself to a big romantic historical epic, though. Um, and I do think that scene where Rose is flying, quote unquote. Uh, where she decides to be with Jack and he just leads her to uh, the very front of the boat and the music is playing and there's a beautiful sunset in the background. Uh, Just really the perfect encapsulation of why this movie just works the way it does. And Horner is a major contributor to that. Yeah, I didn't realize till I clicked on this that uh, he also like actually like did the did the music, not the lyrics for "My Heart Will Go On" on top of like the actual rest of the movie score. So just a a, a huge flex by him with respect to everything. And uh, yeah, the, the movie would not be nearly as iconic uh, without those contributions either. A- Adam, you have any feelings about the music or anything? Really, anything else in the movie we haven't touched on? Because I did, I'm I'm kind of out of stuff to ask you guys. Yeah, I mean the score is really good. I'm not really a big like score person. Like I don't really sit and listen to you know movies scores like in my free time it's not my thing but the score is always is good uh my heart will go on is a great song like i feel like i went through waves like i feel like i know it was obviously very popular in the wake of the movie and then you know probably up until a few years ago i thought this song is just like okay it's fine it's an overwrought ballad whatever and then i'm like listening to it some more i'm like this is a good song it's a good ass song and it stirs up emotions and they i also get a similar reaction from hold my hand uh by lady gaga uh from the top gun movie it's a good song and i'm like every time i every time i hear hold my hand i think of um you know tom cruise in the car at the end of top gun like or in the plane at the end of top gun like it it so it's very effective at that as far as anything else from the movie but yeah like there's some other like there's always there's a lot of you know trivia about the movie like um the fact that i think they fixed where the milky way is in the when they redid the movie for the dvd or like (laughs) one of the anniversaries or something because it was in the wrong place like in the constantly like the wrong place in the sky in the original um and james cameron had to fix that 
Um, I'm trying to think what else is. I mean, like there's. I mean, obviously, there's. It's just a phenomenal movie. Uh, everyone in the movie, like I said, I think is does a great job. And yeah, it's just like I mean, the movie I've seen all the way through. I I don't know how many times, a dozen maybe, and in bits and pieces. I mean, it's like it'll be. It's always on TV, and it's like oh. You know, they're about to come up on the on the dinner scene or the ship's about to sink. Like, OK, I'll, I'll, I'll watch for the rest of the movie, like or for the hour that I have free. Like, it's just an incredible movie. One thing we didn't really talk about, interestingly enough, is the actual crash scene, uh, which I think is very well done, because every single time I watch the movie, I always think, oh, are they going to are they going to do it? Are they going to be able to do it? Oh, it's getting close. It's getting close. Uh, no, shit, they just hit again. <laughs> uh, which I think it's really impressive to conjure up this much dread uh, and anticipation for a scene that's historically etched, carved in stone, obviously. We all know that the Titanic is going to hit that iceberg. And there are some like really fascinating details that are part of that scene, too. For example, at one point, an officer asks, have we found those binoculars yet? No, we haven't. Nobody's seen them since Southampton. Because what happened was the original chief officer of the Titanic was replaced at the last minute and he took the binoculars with him so there wasn't a single pair of binoculars apparently on board of titanic uh mm. which apparently wouldn't have helped much in the middle of the night to see icebergs uh but still seems like a bit of an oversight uh not to have one of those on board um and i do think it's just really well done because you see that the officers only have a very short amount of time to react because a lot of stuff needs to be done to turn a ship like that and they hadn't really built a ship as big as Titanic previously. And they didn't really have any math done on how much time it would take to steer a ship past an iceberg once it got that close. Uh, so people were just operating in, no pun intended, uncharted waters at that point. Uh, and it really just uh, is a wonderful moment that really kind of like breaks the movie in half, where before the iceberg, it's more of that romantic epic that we already talked about and then after that obviously everybody switches into a totally different mode and i think it's a really nice point halfway uh to really like set the movie apart uh in those two different halves yeah i mean it's just uh, the one thing i would just add to that is like again any moment of the crash basically from start to finish is just like incredibly incredibly uh impressive like just the amount of extras and all the, the, the moving around all of them have to do in any moment during the entire crash sequence just incredible like just just incredible choreography on in, in in all respects to like make that work as well as it does, and I'm sure it was incredibly difficult as we've already talked about with the amount of takes that uh, Big Jim made them do. But uh, it's just I, I I just I was just kind of astounded from a technical standpoint at a, at a point in the movie which I just thought I was going to be like depressed and sad. So uh, just a, a, a job well done, um, Adam. Any other final thoughts on the Titanic? Um, I mean, on the movie itself, not that I can think of uh, something interesting uh, just in about the Titanic itself or related to the Titanic is that 14 years before the Titanic set sail, there was a novel called uh, Futility or The Wreck of the Titan, which has a lot. It's about a British ship liner, like a liner that crashes into an iceberg in the North Atlantic and doesn't have enough lifeboats. And the ship in the book is called The Titan. Yeah, it's very, very oddly coincidental. Um, like it's and it's become known in popular culture. I don't think the book was incredibly popular or anything, but it became known afterwards. It's like, hey, this book from 1898, like, is oddly similar. But yeah, I mean, there, and like I said, the, the Titanic and like everything around it is incredibly interesting. Like, highly recommend checking out that Wikipedia page. 
um, <laughs> or reading about it because it's just it's fascinating. Uh, I did not know that. Uh, that's now, now you do. The more you know. Very fun trivia. Fred, any other final points you want to make before you wrap up? Uh, yeah, since uh, Adam just mentioned a book, I also want to make a quick book recommendation. Um, after I watched Titanic three times, as I said last week, uh, I've been listening to uh, a book called The Ship of Dreams uh, by Gareth Russell on audiobook, which is really just an interesting breakdown of both the history around the Titanic and some of the passengers on the ship. Because what's really intriguing about Titanic is, and I know you kind of jokingly call me the World War I correspondent for this podcast. <laughs> the truth is I actually don't really have a ton of interest in military strategy and battlefield tactics. What I find far more interesting is the uh, historical and political interconnectivity of the early 20th century. And Titanic actually played a huge role in that because when it sunk in 1912, it was right between two very pivotal points in the early 20th century, uh, the death of King Edward in 1910 and the assassination of Archduke Franz Ferdinand in 1914. And this was like in the time period where every power in Europe really just tried to uh, compete for domination of the oceans. And obviously the navies played a huge role in that. Uh, but commercial travel on these big steamships uh, was also a key part of that. Like every country was trying really hard to build these massive ships. Uh, and Titanic was really just the British contribution uh, to that. Ar the, well, not arms race, but transportation race, uh, maritime race, I suppose. Uh, and the book, The Ship of Dreams, does a really good job of exploring some of that. It goes into some of the other characters that we've mentioned already. It has a big chunk about Thomas Andrews. Uh, also talks about a character who has a minor role in the movie, but who also had a really interesting backstory, uh, the Countess of Rothes, uh, who really set herself apart uh, during the uh, evacuation and the rescue, apparently, uh, performed some heroic feats in her lifeboat, also has a big section on Isidore and Ida Strauss, uh, whom Adam mentioned earlier, uh, and their backstory. So very interesting read, highly recommend that. Again, that's The Ship of Dreams by Gareth Russell. Is that your recommendation for today, Fred, or did you have anything else you wanted to talk about? Uh, that is my recommendation for today. Okay. Also, uh, follow me on Letterboxd. The username is Fred Kolb. <laughs> okay, Adam, anything else you want to recommend, uh, Booker, uh, TV slash film-wise, before you wrap up? Um, let's see. TV-wise, uh, I just finished my rewatch of Ted Lasso, uh, getting ready for season three coming out in a couple weeks here. Very excited for that. Now I need to, I need to finish my succession. Uh, not rewatch. I've never finished it, but need to finish that. That ties um, that ties into my recommendation because yeah. it was just as of the recording um, of this, it was just announced two days ago that season four of succession will be its last, sadly. But you know, yep. good for them for knowing when to go out on top instead of letting things, you know, go downhill a little bit. So I was gonna tell everyone that hasn't watched it, like you have it's it's not that many episodes because it's like less than 30, I think, from the first three seasons combined. So you can catch up before the final one because you don't want to like, you know, have anything spoiled for you when you know the show's about to have its grand finale. So do mm -hmm. we read about that? Sorry, were you gonna say anything yeah. else though? Yeah, I mean, I've I've been going through a lot of a uh, lot of media lately. Um, you know, movie wise, uh, Scream Six comes out in about ten days, so very yeah. very excited for that. We got to finish uh, our rewatch, which people we, we do. Done, we might have done by the time people listen to this, but like, yes, Adam and I binged the first three uh, a couple a couple weeks ago, and I told him I would watch the last two at some point before that before we do a podcast on Scream Six. Yes, and then uh, book wise, um, I've knocked out a few a few baseball books lately because it's coming up on baseball season. Um, I read CC Sabathia's book uh, autobiography till the end, which is really really good. Really? Um, he he talks a lot about his um his struggles with trauma, and, which le had let you know you could say led to him becoming a, a high functioning alcoholic. Um, yeah, like it it was a whole thing. It's a great book. Um, the last I don't know hundred pages or so, I literally 
it was like late at night. I needed to go to bed and I just could not put down. So wow. um, I don't ever think of athletes as being that interesting. So it's cool that he, uh, yeah, wrote a book that interesting. I'm, I'm not, I'm not typically a biography guy, but this is a really, really good one uh, that I really enjoyed. Also Doris Kearns Goodwin wrote a uh, autobiography about maybe 20 years ago called wait till next year uh, about her family and, and her relationship with baseball. Also a great read. Great. Uh, last thing I'll say, uh, it's funny that we, we just talked about a Leonardo DiCaprio movie, and I think Fred earlier mentioned uh, how he has Killers of the Flower Moon coming out later this year. I actually finished that book yesterday, and I'm not as I'm not as well read or as avid of a reader as Adam and Fred are, but I just happened to uh, I was at a friend's apartment on Christmas uh, on New Year's Eve, and I happened to make a comment about that book. I'm like, oh, there's a movie coming out about that because the book was on my friend's bookshelf. He's like, oh, you can just have the book if you want, and I was like, oh, okay, I guess I'll. And I, I I'm not anyone that like takes strong stances on like, oh, I have to read the book before the movie, or I never read the book before the movie. I don't really put that much thought into it, but I was like, okay, if someone's just handing me this book, I guess I'll read it. And it took me two months, but I got it done. And you know, it's it's a really interesting book and uh, t- tells a story about the uh, the uh, Osage Indian uh, Osage Indian reservations, a series of murders, and uh, everything that a, a detect or a, a, an investigator from the FBI kind of learned about them as he went into uh, Osage County in Oklahoma to investigate. And it's just I really didn't know the history of this tribe. It's very interesting how they you know had, had such an outsized uh, outsized presence in this in, in this region due to oil money they had and kind of how they were kind of targeted because of that. And it's if you read if you happen to read the book, and I think it is. Uh, really interesting. And there's like a final hundred pages I just blew through in the last couple of days that jumps kind of back to present day and talks about the reporting process. David Grant of the New Yorker wrote the book and it talks about like how he kind of like did his own investigation based on uh, to fill in some blanks based on like uh, everything else you read in like the first 200 pages of the book. And the way he does, it's really compelling. And the other thing I'll say is that like we talked a little bit about Leonardo DiCaprio's career and the, di- the different kind of roles he took on. And Fred noted how there was kind of a change and the kind of roles he took probably in a, in, a, in a smart way. But if you if you read the book, and you might know if you followed the development of the movie, how at one point he was kind of set to play the lead character who's the investigator that comes into the town. And, and at one point, Leonardo DiCaprio said, you know what, I actually want to play this other character. And who's uh, kind of the husband of one of the main Osage uh, Indians in the in, in the book, and has it's it's honestly probably a more a much more, in, in some ways a more interesting and comp, com, and complicated role than the lead investigator, but which is also not an easy part. Who's going to be played by Jesse Plemons now? And it's just it's not that common that Leonardo DiCaprio is like you know what I'll I'll take a supporting role. Not a ton of times he's really done that in his career. Not even that many times where he's part of an ensemble where he's just one of many. He's usually the guy. And I mean, I think he's great when he does do that, like he was in Django Unchained, but it's just not a thing. And I think it's the, the more Leo thing is to just play the main le- investigator going into town to figure something out. And he, I think it's a compelling choice he made. And if you happen to read the book, which I think is really good and in a way wouldn't totally necessarily spoil the movie because it's just it's it's a story that like, you know, is has a lot of different turns as the, the, this investigation of these murders goes on. It's hard to necessarily remember all of them. So it's like you're not going to remember every little detail before you see the movie anyway. And I don't think they can do a completely straight adaptation. So if you're just looking for an interesting story to read, highly recommend Killers of the Flower Moon. And you'll be very intrigued to like wonder how they're going to turn it into a movie. But it's been a long time coming. So I recommend that. Uh, I, I, Fred already plugged his social media. Adam is on Twitter at AB Lichtenstein. I don't know if you know your letterbox off the top of your head, Adam, but you're slowly becoming more active on there. Um, yeah, slowly but surely uh, becoming more active. Uh, my username is just at 
or it's just a Lichtenstein. So if you can spell it, you can find me. Adam writes all day for work. So I don't blame him for not writing too much, but if he, I, I, I enjoy the fact that he started doing it when he's, uh, when he's particularly struck by a movie, because well, I value his thoughts as usual. I'm Josh Chernovoy on both Twitter and Letterboxd, J O S H J U R N O V O Y. And the podcast Twitter is at real movie pod podcast email is real movie pod at gmail.com. Uh, coming up next on the podcast, I'm guessing this will come out before we do something on, uh, before we do something on Creed three and uh, yeah, I'm not totally sure exactly what's going to come after that next after that, but I'm guessing that's the next thing that gets released after people listen to this. So uh, thanks again to Adam and Fred for joining me. Thanks for Fred for really put, put, putting the hard sell on this one for me to do it. I enjoyed talking about it and revisiting this classic movie and thanks to everyone for listening. We'll see you next time.